And we've been going through a series on the parables, so looking at Jesus' parable. And the one we're going to look at this morning is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And it's Matthew 13, 24 through 30. And then Jesus gives the explanation starting in verse 36. So as you turn there, um, I want you to think about our uh, first, one of our first Sundays when uh, I was a pastor at our church in Kentucky. It was called Corn Creek Baptist Church. So kind of whatever came into your mind right then, that's it. It was this little bitty white church building up on the hill with the, the cornfields down at the bottom. It was actually at one time uh, that building was the schoolhouse, the church, the courthouse. It was kind of the center of the community. And uh, as well, Cynthia and I were living in Louisville and I was going to seminary and was the pastor of the church. And it was about an hour north and every uh, Wednesday we'd drive up for the kids program and then Sunday we'd drive up in the morning and stay there all day for Sunday morning service and Sunday evening. And one of the first weeks we were there, uh, the the two deacons uh, who were in the church were taking us around the town and showing us the community. And we were riding around with uh, Bernie Ginn. And so Bernie started at his farm and he was a farmer, generational uh, family farm. And at that time uh, he was growing soybeans and uh, he was just showing us his, his farm and looked over and the soybean crop was almost ready to be harvested. And uh, I looked at the field and I thought, that's beautiful. And I wasn't like trying to butter him up or anything. I mean, you know, sometimes when I compliment people and people tell Cynthia, oh, well, you know, Ben said this, he's just nice. And she was like, no, uh, no, believe it. He, he doesn't say things like that. And so I wasn't trying to like butter him up, but his field was just beautiful. I mean, all the lines, if you've ever seen a well-tended field where all the lines were in perfect, this perfect symmetry and the rows were perfect and there was a uniformity across the crops. And of course, when I said that, he just kind of smiled and his wife rolled his eyes. Oh no, he's going to have the big head forever. And I think he loved me the whole time I was there because he just thought, well, I mean, this city kid, he's not too bad. He can at least recognize good farming when he sees it. And so we started driving around to other, just other parts of the town and, uh, you know, in small towns, there's always backstories. So we went to uh, another neighbor's field whose soybean crop was also ready to be harvested and uh, looked at that field and thought, huh, is, is it supposed to look like that? And uh, the, field, the, the lines weren't quite as straight or steady and there wasn't a uniformity in height. And it looked like maybe there was some corn popping up in places that it shouldn't be. And he kind of got this devilish smile because that was one of his competitors and said, nah, it's not supposed to look like that. And, you know, there's something about there's certain types of jobs, certain types of uh, work that you can look at the condition of like the field and the condition of the field will reflect the skill of the farmer. And, you know, there's certain jobs where you can end and you, you do work and you have like a physical, tangible thing that reflects the quality of the work. It's actually one of the challenges that many knowledge workers have, because if your whole day is spent on things like meetings or emails, you can get to the end of a work day and think, I know I did things, but I, I don't know what. I don't feel like I have anything uh, to show for it. But often you look at the, the, the field, the condition of it reflects the quality of the farming, but one of the challenges is, uh, so one challenge is when we don't have things to kind of show for the work. The other challenge is when we do have something to show for the work, but we don't like what it shows. And we look at the fields like, oh, 
Is it supposed to look like that? And one of our core confessions is this, this is God's good world. It's good. But then we look out into the world and there's often things we see and we think, huh, is it supposed to look like that? Is the world supposed to look like that? Or communities supposed to look like that? Or marriages supposed to look like that? Or churches supposed to look like that? Or Christians supposed to look like that? And what we see as we go through the parables, all of the parables help solve mysteries. They're not just stories meant to entertain. They're meant to give us imaginative and pictorial clues on how we make sense of life. And in this parable, it's helping us to understand why the world is the way it is or why the church is the way it is, or even more personal, why we are the way we are. And if you can learn to see what this parable wants you to see, this can give you a tremendous amount of just balance, tremendous amount of kind of soul stability and a quiet, calm confidence about what you see in life. It can really help you with unfulfilled expectations. Because, you know, one of the great challenges in any realm of life is uh, what were you expecting and then what do you experience? So in answer questions, why does God allow evil, suffering? Why does everything in life seem to have this mixture of both uh, beauty and depravity? So if this parable sinks into you, it can help create that balance, that stability. In one sense, the intention is simple. As long as we're on pilgrimage in this world, the best things will come to us mixed. And we need to arm ourselves with patience. So before we set it up, remember the context. This is uh, chapter 13 is, is all, it's the parable chapter where Jesus is giving us pictures to understand how his kingdom is going to come. And there's seven parables, and that's very intentional. Seven is reflecting images of uh, seven creation, new creation. This is how new creation is going to come. And then uh, the way they're broken down, uh, there's two, they kind of, there's three sections with one parable, then three and three. But even in that, there's two that are big field parables that talk about what the Son of Man is doing, spreading his seed, that's his word, these big fields. And then there's two that are small seed parables that talk about the way the kingdom starts small and then grows. And then there's two that talk about the precious nature of it. It's like a treasure. It's a pearl that's worth selling everything for. So this is the second of the big field parables that's trying to give us the big picture about how the kingdom's going to come. How does it grow? How does it advance? And ultimately, how is it going to end? So the way we're going to look at it, we're just going to break it down. All right, what's the story he tells? And then what's some of the, the meaning? Story, meaning. So let's pick up the story in verse 24. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then in verse 36, Jesus takes his disciples into a house and he explains it. 
Then he left the crowd and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And he answered to them, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the word, and the good seed is the sons of the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all the causes of sin and all the lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear. He who has ears, let him hear. So in this story, there's going to be a balance. Uh, there's two. There's two sowers, there's two seeds, there's two reactions, and then there's two results. So let's kind of get a sense of what's being said in the story. So first in the story, I want you to notice there's two different sowers. See that in verse 37? There's the son of man who sows good seed, and then there's the enemy, the devil, who sows uh, corrupt seed. But look back in verse 24, there's a, there's a little cycle. It's, it's subtle. But here's, there's three different kind of possessives about the Son of Man. It's his field. It's his men. And it's his enemy. So it begins, there's two different sowers. There's the Son of Man, who's Jesus, and he's sowing. And then there's an enemy. And the enemy comes at night. Do you notice when the enemy comes, he comes and he mimics what the Son of Man has done. His method is stealth and his aim is destruction. And he says, this is the work of the devil. Now, what's interesting, you trace the story in Matthew. You know, in Matthew chapter 4, we see Satan come on the scene and tempt Jesus. And then he fails. And then you see him kind of slither into the background where he's behind the scenes. And then we hear another reference in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus gets accused of casting out demons by the power of the devil. And Jesus says, no, you're not understanding what's happening. What's happening is the strong man's being bound and I'm setting them free. And then here in the first two parables, Jesus tells you, you actually can't understand what's going on in the world in history and time if you don't have the characters right and know that there's a battle between the son of man and the devil. And what we saw in the last parable, as he said, the devil's primary desire is to snatch up the word. His primary goal and his work in the world is not to let the word ever get any root in anyone's life. He wants to snatch it up, keep it from you, keep it utterly out of your life. But here we see, all right, if he can't do that, if he doesn't accomplish snatching it, his next strategy is then to go to where it is planted and try and corrupt it. He's going to try and counterfeit it. So we see there's two sowers and both are sowing their word. And so, so much of life is really a battle of words. Whose voice are you hearing? Who are you listening to? Two sowers, but notice two different seed. Look in verse 24. The son of man sows good seed. And then that good seed, did you notice in verse 38 and 37, that good seed results in the children of the kingdom. So it's good seed that produces lives that have been transformed, created by the word that's sown. But then there's also weeds. He's sowing weeds in the midst of the good seed. Now, what type of weed would this be? So Palestinian first century farmer, you know, you hear weed and depending on your background context and different things, you think about different things. 
So what would they thought of of weed? You know, first century weed would have been a thing called Darnell. Now, this annoying weed was the bane of every Palestinian wheat farmer's existence because it looks exactly like wheat, and you can't tell that it's not until it comes to maturity, and you're ready to harvest it. Now, the problem with this is best-case scenario, there's nothing there. Worst-case scenario, it's poisonous. It would carry a poisonous fungus. And so uh, at best, this is nothing. At worst, it's poisonous. And this is why this is a perfect picture of the weeds that the evil one is, is scattering. It's looking to counterfeit and corrupt. And a couple things we, can, we learn from this is that it's, you know, one sense, the action of the enemy. Notice nobody can tell what he's doing until the plant grows. So these things take time to grow. But did you notice where it says, where did he plant? He says he came and he planted the weeds in verse 25, right among the wheat, right in the middle of them. And that should in one sense be alarming for everyone who loves the church, who works for the church, who attends church. Where is the primary place of the evil one's activity? It's right in the midst you might think that you could come here and this is like a refuge and escape from, from the work of the evil one. But this, in many ways, is the front lines where he's trying to do his primary work of corrupting and counterfeiting. In one sense, when you come here, you're not retreating from the front lines. You're entering into them. His weeds grow right in the middle of the good seed. But then notice the two reactions. Do you notice the two reactions in verse 27, how the servants reacted? Look at verse 27. They say, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then do it, does it have weeds? And look at verse 28. Then do you want us to go and gather them up? Let's go. We see them. Let's, let's snatch them up. Master, did you not sow good seed? Why are there weeds? You know, it's interesting to think because he says this was his men that were in charge of the field and planting. And then now after they've done their work, they look and they see this is not, uh, it's, it's, it hasn't panned out like we hoped. And he wonders, they're not a subtle, you know, it says while his men were sleeping in 25. Was there some negligence on their part that allowed the enemy in? Either way, they're the ones who are responsible for the field. And they had the right desire. Notice they want it to be healthy. They want it to be fruitful. But then how do they respond? What are they meant to do when they realize it's not? You notice they jump and they, they see that the field is not the way it should be. And then notice the first thing they want to do. They want to jump to action. We got to start ripping things up. We got to start tearing things out. And they want to jump right to action. But I think they, uh, that's what they want to do. But very wisely, do you notice what they do? The first thing they do is they ask. They come to him and they ask, and he tells them, no, wait. And this is one of the challenges, you know, like embedded in that, that question of uh, did, how then does it have weeds? That is the classic question of why is there evil in the world? How does it have weeds? Why is there evil in the world? One of the deepest, hardest, darkest questions that have been asked since the beginning of time. How is there evil in this world? And you know, there's probably so much unintentional harm 
that's been inflicted on people because people see the evil in the world and want to jump to action and just start pulling things up. And it's one of the great dangers of any time in our life where we see evil and then we react. We want to respond. It's one of the challenges. What are his servants supposed to do to deal with the evil in the world? And here you hear from the master, there's a certain level of patience, not a certain passivity. That's the thing to challenge. How, how do we respond? What do we do? But it should remind us of the dangers of jumping too quickly, responding too quickly. You know, we do live in a world where videos without context can go viral and people can respond very impulsively. And that was their uh, tendency here to respond impulsively. And he tells them, wait, you wait. And it's one of the dangers of fighting any evil. You know, you can fight injustice in a very unjust way. You can fight racism in a way where you become more racist. You can fight any evil in such a way that it actually corrupts you according to the thing you're fighting. And so he gives them, he says, wait, you need to be patient. You know, in one sense, their motives are right and their goal is right, but the challenge is then their method has to be right. And you can think how many things in your life can you have a good desire and good goal, but go about it in a wrong way that does unintentional harm and damage. You know, I think it's one of the challenges for every parent. Every parent wants their kids to be healthy and mature and wise and productive. And then, but how do you bring that about? You can seek the right goal in the wrong way. And that's what his servants are tempted here to do. So he tells them, all right, you need to be patient. But then I do find it instructive that there are certain things they're not supposed to do. Like they don't say, all right, there's, there's wheat and then there's weeds, so let's just go, let's go sell the weed. He says, all right, let's, let's, uh, let's go, let's actually call the weeds wheat. So they don't do that either. But there are certain things that they're called to do. It's the mixed nature of all of these things. And another thing I find really instructive is notice the servants are in essence trying to wrestle with not personalizing the perception of the failure. They're looking out in the field and they say, wait, it shouldn't look like this. Who is to blame? Master, didn't you plant good seed? Why is it this way? And it's one of the hard things. There's so many things in life that we can see, and maybe we don't have the proper perspective to be able to determine whether it's a success or failure or not. They're not the best judges. So maybe you might not be the best judge as you look at your life or your family, or your career, about whether it's a success or failure. They want to respond quickly, but then the master counsels patience. Notice the mercy in verse 29. No, don't just gather them up, because the concern is for the wheat. Lest in gathering up the weeds, you'll uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow. And then the very kind of chilling conclusion is that there's two results the two results in verse 30 is the wheat is going to be gathered into the barn and then the weeds are going to be bundled together and burned. So that's the story. Now let's go on the second thing and let's think about the, the meaning. What are, some of the, what are some of the things we should take from this? What is it meant to help us see? And I think one of the things it's supposed to, to do is help us realize that in the world today, there's just the reality of the two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms, and the kingdom is really here. Uh, that's good news, but the kingdom's not complete. I mean, there's a reality that the, 
The kingdom is here. There has been a seed that has been planted, and it has been growing and bearing fruit for uh, thousands of years and generations. And Jesus has brought about real transformation. And his word is bearing fruit. And there really is a real elimination of things like sorrow and hatred and grief and injustice and sickness and discord. There is real, genuine fruit from this kingdom that has been growing. And he is in the process of healing and restoring all things and making all things new. And this is his good world. And it has been tainted and corrupted by an enemy. But he is restoring and bringing about all things. And as he does, there's a totality in the renewal and the fruit he brings. He is bringing emotional healing and social healing and spiritual healing and relational healing. It's there. And one of our problems is that we can become so one-dimensional, we don't actually appreciate and see the fruit that is around us. You know, in this world, the problem that his disciples probably had, many of the first century farmers would have thought, yeah, I would have an incredible crop if I wasn't being so oppressed by our Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities. And so if I could get them off my back, then everything would be just fine for me. And one of the things that Jesus is going to tell them, the fruit that I'm bringing is not just that simple. It's multidimensional. And we can reduce our problems in so many areas of life where we think, all right, if I can just get the proper medication, then I will be healthier. If we can just have the proper economic situation, then I'll be fine. Or if I can just have certain freedom from certain burdens, then I will be great. If I can just have this, but all the problems go much deeper. They're multidimensional. And the kingdom, the fruit he's bringing, addresses all of these areas of life. So the kingdom really is here. But on the flip side, it comes slowly. A number of these parables are about patience. It comes slowly. And balancing those two things will help keep us, from the one hand, kind of an overzealotry, where we have a zeal, but not always with knowledge, where we can expect too much, too much from the world, too much from others, too much from marriage, too much from kids, too much from job, too much. We can expect too much. This can help us not to expect... Uh, too much, but it also can protect us from becoming too passive or becoming jaded or becoming cynical or bitter. You know, you can fall kind of off the fence on either way where all you do is you just see the wheat and you aren't aware of the, the weeds, the problem, or you can become uh, almost kind of uh, maniacally focused on just the weeds where that's all you see and you aren't aware of the wheat. But one of the gifts uh, that this parable is, is it helps give us eyes so we can see both. You know, in one sense, the world thinks you're either an optimist or a pessimist. It's either or. You're either half full or half empty. And, uh, and I don't even think it's just temperamental. Like a couple weeks ago, somebody started, they were uh, encouraging uh, Cynthia and I, and they started kind of down the track of saying, you know, you guys are just such a wonderful team. Cynthia is always so joyful. Is there ever a time where she's just not happy and she's just so optimistic? And then, and they kind of stopped themselves because I think it's one of those times where you start talking before you realize where you're going. And, so, and then there's, I get it. Yep. Then there's me. <laughs> I, th I think this is a compliment. We balance each other out really well. 
But you know, one of the challenges is, is you, you don't just, you're not just optimistic temperamentally. One of the things that Christians are, what we want to be, is people who have eyes to see what's there, the real wheat, but also have an awareness of the weeds. We have both. You know, Tim Keller says, like, often if you're optimistic, you're not really optimistic, you're just naive. That's all you are. And then if you're pessimistic or cynical, uh, often that just means you're, you, that's just unbelief. And that what, the, what Christians can have two eyes to see both of those things. We see fully. We're thankful and praise God for the half. It's not either or. Is it half full or half empty? It's we are thankful and recognize the half that's there. And then we do not become delusioned or cynical or bitter about the half that is not. You know, in this whole season for the last two years, one of Cynthia's kind of anthems has been choose to see what is. Choose to say it's so easy to get fixated on what's not, what we can't do, where we can't go, all the what's not, but choose to see what is. And the gospel gift is eyes to see the world as it really is, not because you're naive or because you're cynical, but you become a real rejoicer, rejoice in reality. And so the next thing about this kingdom, the first is that the kingdom really is here. It comes slowly. But then as we think about all these parables or mirrors, you know, the real challenge is not why is there weeds and wickedness out there? The real challenge is why is it in here? Don't you know in your own heart there's this strange mixture of both dignity and beauty and then depravity of wheat and weeds? So as we look, the way Jesus sums this parable up in chapters or in verses 39 and 40, the way he sums is there's nothing more important than knowing which of these two you are. That these actually represent uh, not just two situations in the world, but two types of people. He says, are you a son of the kingdom? Whose, whose son are you? He says, real Christians are like seeds. They've been planted. They're miracles. They exist because of the operation of another, because of the planting of the other, because of a power of another. So real Christians are like miracles. But then real Christians also grow. There's growing. You can only tell what time. So it's always worth examining. All right, am I becoming more content, more humble, more joyful? more gracious. Do you know the reality of the kingdom? You know, it's worth thinking about as we close and transition to the Lord's Supper. You're just thinking about why does Jesus counsel patience? You know, he tells them there's going to be kind of this, this day come when this awful reality dawns and he sends his angels to come and make this separation and this fire is going to fall. But he says, until then, be patient. You know, at the end of the age, the angels are coming, and judgment's coming, and separation is coming. But what he wanted to prepare his disciples for is that the reason why he counsels patience is because there's something that's coming before that. There's another separation coming, where he himself is separating as he steps down from heaven. There's another time where he could call down angels to come, but he chooses not to. And he undergoes and places himself under the fire of judgment. So one reason we don't pluck up the weeds now is because right now he's in the business of transforming those weeds into wheat. He's, what he does is what Paul celebrates in, first, or in uh, Colossians 1, 13, that he delivers us from the kingdom of darkness and then he implants us into his 
kingdom of light. So that's what we want to see and then celebrate and experience. And so as we think about communion, you know, one of the gifts that communion is every week is this can be a seed that can be planted in us that can give fruit to bring about healing and wholeness. So on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread represents my body that is broken for you. But the image here is that this bread can be a little seed for wholeness and healing. You know, he comes to bring total healing, healing emotionally, relationally, socially, uh, and spiritually. And so as you take this bread, ask him to help this to be a seed that will be implanted in you, that can bring uh, the healing that you need to experience in your life and in your relationships. Then he took the cup and he said, this cup actually represents my forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. And this can be a seed that can be, bring fruit to the forgiveness of sins. And we come knowing forgiveness is something we need. We all know that we have sinned in the things that we have done and the things we haven't done. But as we take, this can be a seed that will then grow to full forgiveness, both with us, our relationship with the Lord, and then the forgiveness we can spread to others. Lord, we praise you for the gift of your grace. We ask that you would help make these seeds living realities in our life. We ask that you uh, would come and that uh, we would experience the healing and wholeness that you meant to bring. We ask that you would come and that we would experience the forgiveness and restoration. And then once we experience those things, ask that you help us to be the kind of people who can express it uh, in all of our areas of life. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And each week as we begin, we connect a communion and offering. And so here at Trinity, there's a couple different ways right now uh, you can give. You can go online and give online, or we have a box right next to where you uh, receive the little communion cups uh, where you can give. And part of the symbolism there, the connection, is that uh, we take the greatest gift that the Lord gives to us, his immeasurable gift of his son, and then we joyfully respond in giving uh, back to him. Now let me pray again, and then we'll close. Lord, we thank you for that gift of your son. We ask that you help us to receive all good gifts with joy and gratitude. And then we ask that you help us to freely give back as generous givers. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this day, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.